Good morning, everybody. It is wonderful to be here, and I'm always excited to have the opportunity to preach, and I'm even uh, more so excited to be here to preach for you all. Uh, Our family is uh, already encouraged almost daily uh, by your prayers and uh, the, the communications that we have with you and the people in your congregation. Um, we are thrilled that God uh, is finishing up right now our preparations in seminary and, uh, and my preparations to serve you, but that he's also uh, preparing your hearts as well to receive us. And, and we feel it, and we know it, and we appreciate it, and we praise God uh, because of your love and your thoughts and your prayers and your faithfulness. So amen to that. Our message today is going to be from Colossians 2. Uh, chapter 2, 16 through 23 are, are the verses that we'll be looking at today. Uh, before we read God's word, let's go to God in prayer. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet. You reveal to us the way of truth, the way of life. Father, even as these words sit before our very eyes, without the illumination of your Holy Spirit, we are blind. We are those who see but do not see, who hear but do not understand. And so we call for the power of your Holy Spirit to illumine our eyes, to press the truth of your word deep into our hearts to shape us and to form us that we might walk the narrow path of salvation guaranteed in the blood of the Lamb. It is in the name of our King, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Hear the words of Paul from Colossians 2. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ, You died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, and asceticism, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. 
This ends the reading of God's holy word. In the 1960s, there was a term that was coined uh, by a design engineer in the Navy. His name was Kelly Johnson, and Johnson was uh, designing equipment for the Navy in combat. And Johnson, every time he went with his team to design something, he had a phrase that you may have heard of. Johnson was concerned to make sure that the designs of, uh, that they came up with, that they would be simple, that they would be something that the field mechanic who had limited resources, who was under a lot of pressure, the pressure of combat, that this field mechanic would be able to repair the equipment the soldiers needed. And so every time Johnson and his team would come together, uh, he would tell them, keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> now, I don't think the stupid part's very nice, and I don't think it's necessary, but what Johnson wanted his team to keep in mind is important. Keep it simple. When we're in stressful situations, when we're under fire, we should keep it simple. Now, praise be to God, we don't find ourselves in uh, combat daily, not in a physical sense, but we do find ourselves in spiritual combat every single day. Every single day when we go out into the world, we are surrounded by things that threaten our faithfulness, temptations that threaten to lead us astray. And this is what Paul was writing the Colossians about. He was writing to them because they too were under attack. They were under attack by uh, false teachers. They were teaching all sorts of ways that one could be sure of their salvation. But Paul, time and time again in Colossians, he's, he's trying to convince the Colossians that their assurance rests in Christ alone. Their assurance rests in Christ alone because Christ is superior. In chapter 1, he says that Christ is the preeminent of all things, that nothing would exist without Christ, that the fullness of God dwells in our Savior Jesus. And so Christ is superior. And Paul gives us three reasons today why Christ is superior. Paul is so concerned to build up the assurance of these Colossians, of this congregation of believers, because what is the opposite of assurance but doubt? And doubt is a dangerous weapon that Satan uses against the faithful. Doubt is like hunger. It's like thirst. Doubt is something that we seek to do away with. Just as we're hungry and look for food to satisfy our hunger, just as we're thirsty and we look for water to satisfy our thirst, when we doubt, when we doubt in our salvation, we seek something to fill that void. And Paul says, don't you dare look to anything else that these false teachers are teaching. But look to Christ, and Christ alone. It is in him that you will find your assurance 
of salvation. And today, Paul gives us three more reasons why the Colossians should find their assurance in Christ, in Christ alone. First, Christ is the substance. The substance is greater than the shadows. Christ is the source of our salvation. And Christ is the only protection from sin. Paul invites the Colossians to consider their faith, to consider their assurance. And he says, when you're under spiritual attack, keep it simple, because Christ is superior. First, Christ is the substance. Look at verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Paul first says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you. These false teachers that you find yourself in the midst of in this congregation, don't let them judge you. Now, why does Paul say that? He says, don't let these people judge you, first, because they're not Christians, and second, because they're using the wrong measurement, a wrong standard for salvation. Now, I'm claiming that they're not Christians, and I think this is a bold claim for any of us to make, but it can be seen clearly when we see what it is these false teachers are resting in for salvation. They say, sure, sure, have Jesus Christ. You need to believe in Jesus Christ, but you also need to be concerned with these regulations of food and drink and with these festivals and new moons. These all are Old Testament ways that God's people once approached him in worship. These are all things now that these false teachers are relying on for the assurance of their own salvation. And the definition of a Christian is one who places their trust in Christ and Christ alone. Not in festivals, not in cleanliness laws, not in regulations on food and drink, but in Jesus Christ alone. And so I think that Paul shows us first in this text that these are not Christians. And as bold as a statement as that may be, I think we can see that here in the text. So he says, don't let these people who are not Christians judge you because they don't have the authority to do so as those who do not trust in Jesus Christ. But second, they're using the wrong measurement. What measurement do they use to, to find their assurance? How do they measure the fact that they're saved? But only in the works that they do, only in keeping these Old Testament laws. And they try to apply these standards to the believer, and they say, Christian, you are not keeping these standards, and therefore you are not saved. But Paul says, no. He says, no, don't let them measure you by these standards. It's sort of like if I were to bake a cake. Mix up the ingredients. I put it in the oven. I pull the cakes out. I let it cool on a rack. And I ice the cake. And there it sits on the counter. A beautiful, iced, finished, complete cake. Now imagine that someone comes up and says, Scott, that's a nice looking cake you've got there, but you don't actually have a cake because you haven't ground any flour yet. Well, you might be thinking there, what in the world 
does grinding flour have to do with finishing a baked cake? It doesn't have anything to do with baking a cake. Maybe at some point you needed to grind some flour in order to bake a cake, but that's not the case. You don't have to grind flour to bake a cake. The cake is there. It's sitting there, plain to see. Paul says it's the same thing with your salvation, Colossians. There is nothing from the Old Testament that you need to do but trust in Christ, in Christ alone, for your salvation. Grinding flour has nothing more to do with baking a finished cake than Old Testament ceremonies do and the salvation in Jesus Christ. So first, don't be judged. The second, he goes further and to state why these standards, these Old Testament standards, are no longer appropriate to bring one to salvation. Verse 17 says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You see, all of these Old Testament standards, they were ways that people once actually did come into the presence of God. As Israel was in the desert, they had the tabernacle and the glory of God manifest itself in the Holy of Holies. The priests really did have to be holy. They really did have to wash and be clean to go into the holy place where they would go about the work of ministry in the midst of God. But Jesus, but Jesus says, I am the only way. He says, only through the Son can you reach the Father. This invisible God who watches over us, the only access to him is through the visible Son, Jesus Christ, who became flesh so that we might see him, so that we might know God more clearly. Jesus is the substance. Who here would go shopping for a car and consider the shadow of a car? We're looking for a house right now. Would it be wise that we go and visit a house and consider if we should purchase this house so we can move to Monroe and look at the shadow and say, this is a fine shadow. I think we'll live here. That wouldn't be a very good way to pick a house, I don't think. And it's not a good way to find assurance of your salvation either. Because it's the house that matters. It's where we're going to live. We're not going to live in the shadow. The same way, it is Jesus Christ that matters. These Old Testament ceremonies, these Old Testament regulations, they all pointed to the Sabbath rest that we will all find in the blood of the Lamb. These festivals and celebrations and Old Testament worship are no longer the way we are to approach God. They're no longer the way to eternal life. But simply faith in Jesus Christ. So you see, Paul says that when the Colossians are under fire, when they're under spiritual attack, when they begin to doubt, they're to look to the substance instead of the shadows because the shadows point to Christ. In times of doubt, when we're out in the world, 
when we see people who seem more pious than we are or more holy than we are. We shouldn't look to their actions and say, these actions are what bring them to holiness. But we should look to our Savior, Jesus Christ, knowing that nothing that we do saves us, but only what he did on the cross. When you're under spiritual attack, keep it simple. Christ is superior. Paul goes to make his second point. Christ is the source of our salvation. Verse 18 says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So you see, Paul goes from don't let anyone judge you to don't let anyone disqualify. Paul speaks of disqualification in the sense of an athletic competition, right? If you were running a race and you take a shortcut and you finish the race and someone catches you, you're going to say, you're disqualified. Your finish doesn't count. All of the work that you did, you took a shortcut. Paul says, don't let these false teachers disqualify you. What is it that might disqualify a Christian? Well, Paul says right here, let no one disqualify you in doing what? In insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. Well, asceticism is sort of severe fasting, right? It's denying yourself food. It's denying yourself water. It's working on your physical body, removing the things that your body needs so that you can attain a higher spiritual level. You may have heard of ascetic monks that went out into the desert Right, so they could become more holy, so they could remove themselves from the sin of the world. They were looking to protect themselves by being sort of super pious. They said, we don't need food, we don't need water, just the word of God. The problem is, is we're not just spiritual beings. We're people, and we need these things, right? And so as they go out and their body deteriorates, so does their mind start to go, and we see it happen here. We see it happen here, saying that these false teachers insist on asceticism for the preparation of something. Now, Paul says asceticism and worship of angels. I think it's helpful to think of this worship of angels as not worshiping of angels, as in we're worshiping angels, but partaking in the worship that angels give to God. So, The false teachers are saying, prepare yourself in this ascetic way, fasting, so that you can partake in the same worship that the angels partake in. As if this worship that the angels give to God is better than humans and their worship that they give to God. But don't forget that God created us to worship him. He created us to worship him as humans worship him. That's why he made us humans instead of angels. He wants angels to worship God as angels, and he wants people to worship God as people, right? And so Paul says, don't let anyone tell you that you need to fast, that you need to restrain physical well-being from your body so that you can partake in this worship of angels. What do the false teachers do as they go about spreading the word of this false worship, of this false teaching. 
They go around telling people the visions that they've had. If you've been hungry and tired and thirsty, you may have had hallucinations. You may have seen things that weren't really there. Now, it seems to be the case that these false teachers are having the same kinds of vision from their uh, asceticism as they prepare for the worship of angels. And they go about telling people all about these visions. I had this vision. I was in the desert and I was fasting and I had this vision. And I'm truly saved because I had this vision. And so they're challenging the believers. If you haven't had this vision, how do you know? How do you know if you're saved? Remember, the weapon of doubt is powerful in the hands of Satan and his agents. And so we must hold fast. We must consider the source of these visions. Now, for a moment, let's go back to this cake that I baked, right? Let's go back, say we're, we're, uh, we're walking down the sidewalk, and, and, and I say, hey, listen, I want to tell you about this cake that I baked. It was delicious. I, I came up with all the flavor combinations. I sat and I studied, and I thought what flavors would be the best, and I, and I made some, some really great icing, and I mixed everything together, and I put them in the oven, and, and I baked them, and I iced them, and it was glorious. It was a wonderful cake. You might say, well, okay, let me have a piece of cake. But what if I didn't really bake a cake? What if I had a fever the night before? It was 104 degrees, and I had this vivid dream that I baked this beautiful cake. Now, as many details as I give you about that cake, it's not actually going to exist. As wonderful as I said this cake was, it's not actually there. Why? What's the source of my knowledge of this cake? It's in my head. It came from my fever. It came from my body not actually doing very well. What is the source of divisions for these false teachers? But a sensuous mind. That's a mind of the flesh. That's somebody who perceives things the way the world perceives things. Purely physical. You see, the problem is the wrong source. When we consider our salvation, when we seek assurance that we are saved, we shouldn't look to something that finds its source in this world, but we should look to something that finds its source in God, the creator of all things. What does Paul say the source is here? In verse 19, he says, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Do you see the parallel now? A sensuous mind or God? The choice should be clear to us. What should be more assuring? A sensuous mind telling us that we should go and do these things to find our salvation or God, who tells us very specifically that salvation is through a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the source of our salvation, and so when we find ourselves under fire, under spiritual attack, know 
that your assurance is in Christ alone because Christ is the source of our salvation. He's the only access that we have to God. There's an interesting parallel, or maybe an interesting parallel we could draw. As these false teachers seem to actually believe what they're teaching. They actually believe what they're teaching, and and even though it's wrong, what do they do? They go out and they tell people about it. Whoever's going to listen. They're going on and on in detail about visions that come from their worldly minds. Well, they have a mind that is dead to, this, to the spiritual realities of this world. They can't see it, and yet they still go out and talk about it. What, what way might that challenge us, those of us who are alive in Christ, who have had the Holy Spirit revive our souls? If the false teachers are going out and teaching of salvation of another sort, maybe we should do the same and go out teaching the truth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. They are so sure of their message that they go out and repeat it over and over and over again. And I urge you to consider how convinced are you of your salvation? Do we go out and tell all of those that we see? Do we go out and show all of those that we see through our lives? They're showing through the lives of asceticism. Do we show it through lives of godly living? There's a subtle challenge here in the message from Paul today in all of us, or to all of us, to be so assured that we know the truth that we can't help but go out and talk about it over and over again. Going on in detail, not about visions from the flesh, but the revelation of God. Christ is our assurance. And so when we are under spiritual attack, we can be rest assured because Christ is the substance. Christ is the source of our salvation. But Christ is also the only protection from sin. Verse 20 says, If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. Christ invites the Colossians to consider what does it mean to have died in Christ. What does it mean? Paul also says that we have been baptized into Christ's death. What a strange saying. What does it mean to be baptized into the death of Christ? When Christ died, he had 
no contact with this world. When Christ died, he had no dealings with this world. And so what does it mean to be baptized into the death of Christ? But to put away the dealings that we have of this world. It doesn't mean that we're to go out into the desert and live apart from everybody else. But it means that we're to live differently than everybody else. Paul shows us here that it's not where we live, but how we live. He says, why? Why, if you have nothing to do with the teachings of this world anymore, why do you still act like you do? Why do you still act like this world has any bearing on our salvation when our salvation is already in Christ? Look at what he talks about. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Remember that they were passing judgment in ways of food and drink. Paul says, why? Why are you doing this? There's no assurance to be found in these things. Your doubt will not be satisfied as you do these things, but you'll be misled. You'll be disqualified, right? And again, we look at the nature of these things. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used. Well, what are we called to? As we are baptized into the death of Jesus Christ, we are also baptized into a resurrection like his, a resurrection that leads to everlasting life. The things of this world perish, and those who put their trust in the things of this world, they perish right along with them. But those who place their faith in Christ have everlasting life. They will never pass away. They'll never pass away, no matter how hard things get in this world. No matter what other people may seek to require of you, your salvation will never pass away if you truly believe in Jesus Christ. And where does this all come from? Paul says once again, this all comes from human precepts. This all comes from a sensuous mind. And so... What good does it have, or what does it have to do with salvation? Nothing. Verse 23, Paul says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I think sometimes Paul gets a bad rap. Paul seems like uh, in his zealousness and in his zeal for God's word and for salvation through Jesus Christ, maybe sometimes we can read this and think, Paul, you're kind of harsh sometimes. Maybe settle down a bit. But here we see a different side of Paul, a more full picture of Paul. We see why he's so eagerly calling people to repent of their sins and believe. Because this is pastoral Paul. And I don't mean to say that there's different Pauls out there, but a side of Paul that maybe sometimes we fail to see is that Paul really cares. Paul really loves these congregations, even though he's never met them before. They are his brothers and sisters in Christ, and he cares for them. And so we see this pastoral side of Paul come out in the letter here when he says, I understand. 
I understand why you might look at these things and say, oh, that's a pious way to live. That's a good way to live a religious life. Remember, that was the way Paul lived his life as a Pharisee. Before Paul's experience with Jesus Christ, Paul too was zealous for religious rituals. Paul was zealous for the Old Testament law and for the ceremonies that were supposed to keep somebody holy. Remember, he was a Jew of Jews. Remember, he was a Pharisee. He was zealous for the traditions and religions of his fathers, of Israel. But not even for Paul, the most zealous, not even for Paul would that bring about salvation. But it was only when he became a new creation. It was only when his faith in Jesus Christ made his spirit alive. Dead to this world, alive to spiritual reality. And so Paul can say, I know. I know how these things can be deceiving. As we go out into the world, there are many things that might deceive us. There are many people who profess things that sound true. There are many people that profess things that actually are true in some sense. Things that are practical, things that are healthy, things that are good in their own right, but things that have nothing to do with salvation. And so when we find ourselves in a time of doubt, we need to look to God to the Son of God, to Jesus Christ, because that has to do with salvation. Because Jesus Christ's work on the cross is the only thing that is our protection from sin. I might even say, coming to worship on Sundays, we should, in a sense, beware. For if we come to worship on Sunday so that at the end we can say, God, you owe me eternal life because every Sunday I was in the sanctuary. Every Sunday I was in Sunday school. Every morning I read my Bible. Every morning I said my prayers. You owe me, God. If that is the end of our personal devotions and worship, it's of this world. So you see, even things that are good, we can misuse to a bad end, to a way that would disqualify us, the throne of grace, because it's not in works that we are saved, but through grace, the grace of God, that we believe in Jesus Christ. And so we should always be aware that even things that look good, they don't have to look as as outlandish. It's what these false teachers are professing. I would even venture to guess that most of us in here, if someone had approached us and said, the Old Testament cleanliness laws, are they're now back in effect, right? Or if you should all come out to the desert with me and we're not going to eat for a week so that we can have visions and have a true spiritual experience, I doubt anyone in here would be fooled but we can fool ourselves into thinking that the things that we do save us. Let us never forget that it is only Jesus Christ that saves us.
faith in him and him alone. And it is in him and him alone that we stop the indulgence of the flesh. That seems to be the whole end of Paul's letter at this point, right? These things are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, in walking a godly life, in being righteous before God. These are important, eternally important things. And there are many people that will convince us or attempt to doubt that salvation is that simple. There are many people that will tempt us to doubt. But they are the agents of this world. They are not of Jesus Christ. So in times of spiritual attack, when you find yourself doubting, just as Paul calls the Colossians to, trust in Christ, in Christ alone. Because Christ is superior. Brothers and sisters, keep it simple. Let's pray. Father, how much easier could it be that you reveal to us in word, in person, that you have called these prophecies to be fulfilled in the Son, the eternal Son, who became flesh, our Savior Jesus Christ. And how impossible it is for us to grasp hold of the promises of truth without your help and your Holy Spirit. Lord, we humble ourselves before your throne. It really is simple. It really is not through the work of our hands that we are saved, but through your Son, Jesus Christ, whose blood purifies us and brings us righteousness so that we may gather and worship you for all eternity. As you, has, as you have created us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, if you would, please, let us rise as we profess our faith together, the truth found in Scripture, in the words of the Apostles' Creed. In whom do you find your assurance, brothers and sisters? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He ascended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth